Testing, testing, testing. <clears throat> All right, folks, sorry it has to. I just realised it's ticked over 11 o'clock. I'm running late. This is not good. Good thing we're not doing Germany this week. Um, punctuality, very important, although the Nordic countries aren't far, but I'll make up for lost time. Um, Cloud students are hearing this. It's not, it's not just me. The computer system's taking forever to load. Um, could that be Australia's broadband connectivity? Uh, shortcomings vis-à-vis some other countries. Come on, come on, preparing windows, how long do you need? And why do they take photos of guys sitting in front of computers going like this? I mean, couldn't they spend the money on something else? I don't know. Okay, well, I will start <coughs> without the notes up, um, and as soon as they do come up, um, <coughs> I'll make them visible. So, we're looking at the Nordic countries of Europe, and that's uh, takes us, and I'll show you firstly the illustration, um, which is on Cloud Deacon, um, takes us away from where we've been for a few weeks. We're still in the north of Europe, but we're in, uh, we're crossing, we're crossing the North Sea um, from Britain and the troubled Northern Ireland, where we have been, and we're going to look at the five Nordic countries, Sweden, <coughs> Finland, Denmark, Norway and Iceland. And I'll zoom in a bit there. So you can see the countries, Oslo, the capital of Norway, Stockholm, the capital of Sweden, uh, Copenhagen, the capital of Denmark, Finland is over here, Helsinki the capital, and Iceland is off, off the chart, so to speak. Oh, sorry, it's over here. Reykjavik, the capital of Iceland. They're the five Nordic countries. Um, Iceland only has 300,000 people, but it is still a country, um, even though it's small in Tasmania. The combined population of the Nordic countries is about the same as Australia, 25 million or so. Um, And that's one of the reasons, one of many reasons, that I think the Nordic countries have some relevance to Australia. Um, and it's something I've personally been spending a lot of time with my research in, in recent years arguing. Um, and not everyone agrees with me, but that's fine because, you know, it's the nature of debate about policy futures for countries. Um, whether we can or cannot learn some things from overseas, and if so, which other countries we might be able to learn from. Now, <clears throat> I'm sometimes accused of promoting my own work um, here, uh, and I, have, I am using a book that I've previously written um, a quote from. Um, however, I'm not trying to gain commercially from this, although I do have another book coming out in a couple of months, um, which I might give you some sneak previews of. Um, if I'm going to be accused of it, I might as well do it. No, I, you know, I only do it if appropriate. Okay. So, in Nordic countries... Why are, they, why are they of interest to me? Well, one of the reasons is that they have very low levels of child poverty. They have related to that strong supports for parents and services for when their children are young, paid parental leave, which I think we have started to raise in this class before. I'll just close this window. It's a bit noisy. Um, they have better work-life balance in Australia as measured in the number of hours actually spent at work. They still have more boundaries around the weekend, for example. In, in, um, the, the weekend as being separate from work. And there's, there's been some recent discussion in Australia of the possibility of 
having more capacity for workers to disconnect from work and not, for example, read work emails on the weekend. Uh, a number of Northern European countries have done things in this respect. The Nordic countries are among them, France is another. School results, Finland in particular, um, has gained attention in recent years for having outstanding results in international comparisons um, of quality of learning, but doing so through an entirely public school system where everyone goes to the local state school and teaching is a highly valued profession which is very hard to get into. Um, also, support for workers who may lose their job in particular industries, like the Geelong workers in, in Ford or the Latrobe Valley workers with the closure of coal-fired power generators, support for reskilling workers. Um, and in Denmark, uh, in particular, a lot of former shipyard workers, for example, in one region affected by the closure of a shipyard, were retrained to work on a major renewable energy hub involving wind turbines. Denmark's the world leader with wind power. And another feature of these countries is they have higher taxes. Now, some would say there's a negative thing, but it does give them the capacity to spend on worthwhile services. So uh, they are real countries. I mean, th th there is a book that's been written called Are the Swedes Human? Suggesting that maybe they're actually, you know, um, maybe... Elon Musk doesn't need to go to Mars because they're already here, occupying that northern European country, because they're different. Um, they, they seem to be able to do things that are not theoretically possible, um, according to free market economics, for example. But they are real. They're not off the planet. They are in the OECD. They're developed countries like Australia. Other critics suggest that they, they once were you know, wonderful, but they're not anymore. But they've been saying that for about 40 years. They keep saying the Swedish model's collapsed. It's collapsed again. And when they told me the third time it collapsed, I, thought, I said, I thought it collapsed twice before. How can it keep collapsing? You know, it must still exist. And, and they have their imperfections. And one of them, one of the notable imperfections, actually, which is very relevant, is that Sweden has been unsuccessful with tackling coronavirus and took a, a, um, a less stringent approach than we've taken in Australia. And that's one clear example where we shouldn't be following Sweden's lead. However, there are many positives. Um, the notion of path dependency this is, this is a theory that in, it's in political science now and, and a, a commonplace everyday example of how this works is the keyboard on your laptops if you look at it the first six letters of the alphabet there are QWERTY yes uh, Georgia is that case on yours on this one here QWERTY um, now why is that is it it's not because that's the optimal way of laying out a keyboard um, in terms of the number of times you use particular letters. It's because, if you look across the QWERTY top line, it's because when typewriters were invented in the 19th century, people selling them wanted to impress potential customers, so they wanted to type out the word typewriter from the top line without having to go down to the second and third line. And that established the keyboard in this form as irrevocable because people got so used to it uh, and I remember typewriters. I remember, you know, ribbons, Dominic Wall too, liquid paper, stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> this is seen as an example of once technologies or countries go down particular paths, it's very hard to change. And so it's argued that um, Australia cannot learn from um, countries that have gone on different paths. I, I challenge that. I think that's a very fatalistic 
point of view. Um, and I, partly because I think it contradicts the other thing we, we hear a lot of these days, that we live in a more globalised world, that um, globalisation transforms nations and erodes barriers and therefore it should open up possibilities. They can't both be right. You can't be nations are totally path dependent and will always stay on the path they've been placed on and globalisation is changing those paths. They can't both be right. There must be something in between there. Um, and also, Australia has changed. I mean, Australia has changed, not in directions I'd necessarily like. Australia, the Australian path included a strong emphasis on, for example, an arbitration commission with centralised wage fixing uh, and strong unions. And that's been eroded a lot. And, and no one told the people who pushed for deregulation of the labour market that they couldn't do it because Australia had its, its pathway of the Arbitration Commission since the 1890s and the Great Strikes and uh, the harvested judgment of um, uh, Higgins um, and so on. Um, perhaps it's an excuse for not taking action. It's, it's all too hard. I'll give some examples of where Nordic initiatives things that have started over there have spread around the world. One of them is the ombudsman. That's the term we know. It's in the English language now. An ombudsman, uh, a person who represents individual citizens against excesses of government. It's actually an old Norse word, meaning representative or commissioner. So it started in the Nordic countries, and nearly, nearly all countries now have ombudsmen. Children's commissioners. Australia has several, a national one and several state children's commissioners. Prohibition of physical violence against children. Hmm. That's an interesting one. I still find it amazing that in Australia and many other countries, America, it's illegal to hit anyone except a parent's allowed to hit a child. Um, so it's illegal to hit anyone except the most vulnerable, small, defenceless people. I find that incredible. Um, and I oppose it. And one of the reasons I oppose it is that I'm not suggesting that any, any parent who has ever given their child a smack on the bum or a tap on the wrist is a serial killer. Don't get me wrong. But is, there is much evidence that a lot of uh, very serious injuries and damage to children happens, starting in the name of parental discipline. Now, Sweden banned smacking of children in 1979 by parents, but it didn't just ban it. It did so as part of an educational initiative to show that this was not an effective method of discipline, that it sent the wrong message because the child only experiences pain. The child does not understand what they're supposed to have done wrong. Reason, conversation is needed. Now, 60 countries around the world now have banned smacking of children, including New Zealand. Australia is still yet to do so. Sweden started paid parental leave. Um, I think we've mentioned here before, Sweden has 16 months paid parental leave whenever a child is born for the, for the parents, provided that the father takes at least three. So paternity leave, a minimum of three. Otherwise, the family only gets 13 months. So there's an attempt to try and ensure that uh, at least some small but significant part of fathering is mandated for fathers, not just mothers. So it's a gender equality initiative. And many people might object to that as interfering in individual household decisions, couples and so on, how they choose to organise their lives but others would support it. We have paid parental leave in Australia now. We have two weeks dad and partner pay as well as um, maternity leave. Not at the same generous rate or extent as the Nordic countries, but we have got it. Finland 
and meanwhile has done some fascinating things. Um, and Finland, as we see on the map, if we go back to it for a moment, Finland is, is not quite in the same... Finland is Nordic, but it's not Scandinavian. It's more to the east. Iceland, Sweden, Norway and Denmark are Scandinavian. Finland is not. And one of the reasons it's not Scandinavian is because it has a completely different language from the others. Swedes and Danes can sort of understand each other. The language comes from Germanic. The Finnish language is more from a Hungarian family of languages. And as you can see, Finland borders the Soviet Union, or the former Soviet Union, Russia. Therefore, it's obviously been affected by that proximity. Indeed, one of the iconic events in Finland's history is the Winter War against the Soviet Union when uh, before, before the Battle of Stalingrad and the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union, there was a, a, a significant war where the Soviet Union attempted to uh, subdue Finland. Um, Finland fought off the Soviet Union, which is a pretty impressive effort actually for a small country to fight, fight off such a big neighbour. Um, and the Winter War, as it's known. Now, so I say here, perhaps somewhat colourfully, but um, I say, you know, to those who say we can't learn anything for these countries because we're on our own paths, well, one of, the, one of the things the Finnish schools do is that they provide free hot lunches for students. And I, I'm fortunate to have visited there and been in the school and, and sat with teachers and students at a typical school as part of my research, and it's all paid for by the state. Students swipe their student card at school, they sit down, they get these nice salads, there's hot foods, and the obvious advantage that something like that has is that kids who might come to school hungrier um, are not going to be disadvantaged. Um, and it's an equalising influence. Now, do we need to go back to 1940 and fight a winter war against the Soviet Union? Do we need a time machine uh, before we can possibly consider having free hot lunches for Australian students? Rhetorical question, hyperbole perhaps, but I don't think we do. Um, when we look overseas, we tend to look at English-speaking countries. Uh, US, Britain, New Zealand and Canada. But as we suggested when we looked at the German week's topic, English-speaking countries have some things in common which are positive, but others which are less positive, including this devaluing of vocational trade skills, for example. There are many people looking for different policies in Australia and if you're looking for different policies then it helps to have evidence that those different or alternative policies work shown in real world cases. And so I'm seeking to contribute as an academic to discussions to influence politicians, decision makers to consider these ideas uh, from Nordic countries, to not see them as off the chart. Now, the spirit level, which is one of the readings uh, this week, now I believe there might have been some difficulty accessing this reading. Did anyone encounter that? No? So you were able to access it? Uh-huh. That's helpful. Good. The spirit level was a book written by two British epidemiologists, um, <coughs> Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett. Published in 2010. Uh, it's a while ago now, but um, that looked at the question of inequality and how much inequality affects well-being and showed with its correlations um, how more equal societies do much better in terms of health and so on. And it was ironic that at very time when uh, people on the left of centre, many have become very disillusioned about the prospects of achieving change, 
people from humanities or, or social sciences backgrounds, for example, perhaps law. Um, then came these two professors of epidemiology with powerful new evidence about uh, how inequality is a negative thing for people's health and well-being. Now, we're not suggesting, I'm not suggesting that the Nordic countries are socialist paradises. Um, they're democratic countries. Um, part of their culture is strong uh, community involvement in things like volunteering, uh, rank and file membership of trade unions, and education systems. If you, if you've, has anyone here been to Stockholm? No? My first visit there, one of the first things I noticed was that on, on the skyline, you know when you go into Melbourne of a night time, you see the signs of big companies and so on up and lit up. One of the, one of the uh, signs in Stockholm is for the co-op, the cooperative uh, supermarket chain. So they don't just have the equivalent of Coles and Woolies commercial supermarkets, they have cooperative supermarkets owned, run not-for-profit by many ordinary citizens. Um, <coughs> Trade unions are still strong there and they're very legitimate stakeholders. Trade unions have played a big role in building up Nordic economic and social policy successes, so they're respected for that reason. Um, then there's the question of um, immigration. Right. Well, the Nordic, it's true that the Nordic countries aren't as multicultural as Australia or America. <coughs> However, multiculturalism is a good thing, but multiculturalism can also conceal considerable exploitation and inequality. Countries that pride themselves on being multicultural, although they take in many immigrants, also often segment those migrants into lower paid jobs, less secure jobs, and so on. And we know that Australia and its multiculturalism with migrants doesn't extend to refugees who arrive by boat and hasn't for a long time. And it hasn't meant anything good for the indigenous people of Australia, who are still uh, dying in record numbers in custody, uh, 30 years after the Royal Commission, uh, who are still trying to seek a treaty, um, something that other colonised societies have long had, New Zealand has had, for example. And we know in America that it doesn't do much for African Americans in terms of uh, the extent to which black Americans are shot and killed and imprisoned. Um, and yet another incident yesterday. Um, so, I, I, we have to look carefully when we talk about multiculturalism. The other important point is that Sweden in particular has become much more multicultural. It was relatively monocultural. Now, it's not, you know, the image of all Nordic people look tall, blonde, blue-eyed and drive Volvos and so on. Um, pardon? Not true. Not true, no. Um, and in Sweden, it was more true... It was more true 30 or 40 years ago. But um, one in every four Swedes is now born, o born overseas. That's a high proportion, 25%. Um, and that's partly because Sweden, like Germany, has taken in huge numbers of refugees in the last um, decade or so. And that's not without tensions there. I mean, we know in Australia we've got the issue of refugees. We've got Pauline Hansen and her ilk protesting about multiculturalism. There is some issues there too. There is a far-right party that has some support. But the major parties, not just the Social Democratic Party, which is 
the uh, mainstream left party, but the other parties too, the mainstream conservative parties, the, main, the equivalent of the Liberal Party, don't tolerate the racist sentiments of that far-right party and they will not work with them. So we've had coalition government in Sweden led by the Social Democrats with the Greens and others. So uh, those, who, those conservatives who predicted that Sweden would inevitably reduce its high taxes when it became more multicultural have been proven wrong. There hasn't been any significant reduction in taxes. The idea of that is that people will be prepared to pay high taxes if they knew, only if they know the money is going to people like themselves. They won't pay taxes to support people who are different. Well, that, that hasn't been proved by Sweden's lived experience. In terms of inequality, all capitalist countries have inequality. But some are more equal than others. I'm not trying to paraphrase George Orwell's uh, uh, animal farm there. there. There are extents of inequality. So, on one measure, income distribution. Um, the Nordic countries, excluding Iceland for statistical reasons, but is nearly twice as equal as America. So this is called the decile ratio, that the income of the top 10% compared to the bottom 10%. Top 10% in Sweden, Finland, Denmark and Norway do get three times the bottom 10%. So there's inequality. But in Canada and New Zealand, the top 10% get four times the bottom 10%. In Australia and Britain, the top 10% get four and a half times the bottom 10%. And in America, the top 10% of income earners get almost six times what the lowest 10% of income earners get. Hence, we can say that America is twice as unequal as the Nordic countries. And those things matter in real life. Um, inequality has also risen there to some extent. Um, I don't think it's been a linear trend, but there has been some increases in inequalities. But they are different in the extent of inequality than the English-speaking countries. And English-speaking countries do disappear, sorry, do differ from uh, one another in their extents of inequality. America, as we just saw from those figures, is, is more unequal or less equal than it Australia, Britain, Canada and New Zealand. The source there in the footnote, which is, I know is small on the screen here, but <clears throat> you'll see when the notes are put up tomorrow afternoon, is OECD data and there are some updated figures there which show no change uh, in those relative situations on the available figures. Children. Sweden's interest in children, children's rights... The ban on hitting children is one example of that. Uh, shows up in the well-being and equality which Swedish children can enjoy. The support that parents are given at stressful times in their lives with regulation of their hours and provision of the paid parental leave. The effect of extensive paid parental leave is in fact to encourage people, including mothers, to return to the workforce in due course after the 16 months, or perhaps earlier, um, usually mothers take parental leave initially, partly because of breastfeeding, um, and men later. But women don't drop out of the workforce in the long term um, in Sweden. In fact, they return to a much greater extent than they do in Australia to full-time jobs. I've got some precise data on that, which I'll show later. Um, so if you have time off when you need it, you're more likely to return, particularly if, as in Sweden, you have affordable, primarily public, early childhood education and care. Now, one of the dilemmas Australian women have, 
is that they, the proportion of women who have full-time jobs peaks at about 75% in their late 20s. Those women who choose to become mothers take time out of the workforce and they, they never return to the same extent to full-time jobs as in their late 20s. And that's partly because we have a system of expensive, private, overwhelmingly private early childhood uh, childcare and it, people make decisions that it's financially not worth it to return to work because the wages factored against the cost of childcare make it very difficult to return to full-time work. And, but the trouble is that if, if women don't return to full-time work, then that means women earn less money or get less money during their working lives. And given that our superannuation system uh, is based on how much time you spend in the workforce, then they're going to end up poorer. And they do, uh, as they get older. And that's not good for gender equality. And we're hearing a lot about gender equality in Canberra at the moment. Um, perhaps this could lead to some policy discussion about these, these uh, outcomes. We, valuing early childhood educators and carers. Now, what do we seek in a childcare worker? Some people say, right, childcare means it's just childminding, right? So if I take my kid to childcare, as long as they're still there at the end of the day, haven't gone under a bus, job done. Others say, no, it's much more important than that because these are the first times that children actually meet other children. The first time they learn to socialise. And there's a lot of evidence, including again from the health practitioners, the epidemiologists, the neuroscientists and so on, that the, the most important learning in people's lives occurs in their first few years and as they are exposed to other people in different contexts. It really develops the brain. And so ch quality childcare settings are very important. One of the reasons that Sweden values its early childhood educators and carers is that they are also well placed to pick up if there's problems. Now, if there are problems in individual homes, if there's uh, something wrong psychologically or else in other respects, it's, it's natural that a teacher, whether it's an early childhood teacher or another type, an older uh, cohort's teacher, will see a range of children in a, in a group and, and can see that one is or two are, are less confident, uh, are more withdrawn or upset, that sort of thing. They get a unique perspective on the range of children. And that can, they can be very important sources of information to help uh, uh, children who may have particular needs. Six months minimum paid parental leave is recommended by the World Health Organisation um, to ensure adequate breastfeeding and recovery time for mothers. And we don't have six months minimum, we have 18 weeks. Perhaps all countries should have to adopt the, the World Health Organisation minimums. Um, <clears throat> could Australia take some steps towards more public early childhood education and care? Not universally at first, but pilot them in particular areas. Now there are some parts of Australia which have particularly high proportions of children and, they, and which are socio-economically disadvantaged. You can find that through census data. The last time I looked the area of Melton in the northwestern suburbs um, of Melbourne, for example, has that. That would be a good place, I think, to pilot the provision of more public early childhood education care and see whether that makes a difference over time. And if it does, perhaps extend it more widely. 
Now, Sweden values its early childhood educators. Finland particularly values its teachers. Now, school teachers in Australia seem to be a favourite uh, target for criticism. Um, if, if something goes wrong in your life, blame the bloody teachers. Uh, there was a time a few years ago the teachers in had a, had a car sticker on the back saying, if you can read this, thank a teacher. To get something positive. Now, I don't know what this battery seems to be fading out here. Let's pause for a moment. Don't deprive me. Loud students. I'll try this, sorry. Because um, they don't make the suits with two pockets now because it doesn't look stylish. Um, I don't know if it'll work. Alright, I'll, I'll, I'll hold on. Um, Alright, so Sweden values the early childhood education teachers. Finland in encourages and values the teachers. And it shows that um, by the fact that teaching is a hard profession to get into. Only one in ten applicants to become teachers in Finland, school teachers, succeed. And it's not entirely based on academic uh, entry steps. It's not just an ATAR. There's actually interviews with the candidates. And, and at the interviews, which are given to panels of experienced teachers, the applicants have to demonstrate why they want to be teachers and one of the key things is passion. Passion to communicate real commitment, desire to make a difference for lives. Um, now, I'm, I, we can talk about this in a seminar, but I, I imagine that each of you at some time in your lives, I hope you have anyway, can remember at least one important positive teacher, school teacher, who may have made a difference to you. Um, we'll explore that and why. Um, Support for teachers, trusting of teachers and not constantly telling teachers what they should be doing um, but trusting the ones you have selected on the basis of merit and commitment to do their jobs. As we discussed with Germany, Finland does value vocational as well as academic schooling. Finland, however, gets it even more correct, it does even better because it has separate but equal vocational and academic schools. So in upper secondary education, after about year 9 or 10, students can choose the vocational option, but that doesn't cut off their contact with languages and mathematics. It doesn't mean they can't change course later. There's no dead ends and there's no none of the status differentials that we have in Australia. The success of Finland in those international comparisons uh, contributed to the debate in Australia about whether we should rebalance funding between private and public schools with the Gonski Report. Does the, name, the term Gonski Report ring a bell to you from your years in school? Quite controversial, but succeeded in getting some re rebalancing of funds from elite private schools to more needy state schools, but not as much as its advocates had wanted. Vocational education... Um, remains a problem in Australia. Um, TAFEs are run down and under-resourced. There's, there's a sense of pressure that people should, young people should all go to university, even if it's not always the best option for them. There's also, in Australia, we have high-stakes testing. NAP plan is one. 
Um, competition between schools, which extends to people buying houses in particular school zones. One of the first things real estate agents will do in Melbourne is say, you're in the Baldwin High zone here, or you're in the McKinnon High, and these, are, these do very well. Um, so the idea that people get into good schools and get out of the, the general system is alive and well, rather than the idea of trying to commit to making all schools good. Uh, and, and of course, if you take away bright people from their local state school, then the state school's not going to get any better. It's going to become more residual um, in, in a socioeconomically disadvantaged area. Um, high stakes testing can produce anxiety, it can produce distortions in results because people, uh, school funding may depend on the NAPLAN results, therefore the schools might encourage those who are not doing so well not to attend on the day of the NAPLAN. They might teach to the test rather than teach for learning. Um, and they're not the same thing. Um, in Finland it's widely accepted and allowed for people to get things wrong. Making an error is often the best way to learn. Um, but if you're not allowed to make an error because it might disadvantage your school or your career or your family, then you'll, you'll, be, you'll tend to you know, learn by rote or whatever means how to recite the right answer rather than inquire into what the truth might be. Um, some other countries that pop up in the international comparisons of uh, high educational results besides Finland are China, Singapore. When I say China, it's actually done in two cities, um, Shanghai and Hong Kong. Well, we're seeing what's happening in Hong Kong. It's becoming more and more integrated into mainland China. And people say, well, we've, we've got it. Sometimes we've got to become more like the high-performing countries like Finland and China, but they're actually high-performing for completely different reasons. Because in China, it's, it's more about rote learning and working all the time and not really enjoying learning. Uh, in Finland, it's the opposite. They, they study less, they play more, they encourage trial and error. And I tell you what, I don't want to emulate the Chinese system as someone who trained in history, because I know that if I lived in China and Googled Tiananmen Square, I won't get anything about the 1989 student uprising uh, and the deaths of young people there. Instead, I'll get some propaganda. And that's not my idea of a, of a good education system. So, learning from overseas, which overseas countries, why, we have to be clear on that. Okay, so we're highlighting particular strengths of each country. Sweden in early childhood, pay parental leave, Finland in, in school education. In Denmark, one of the strengths is they have this, this term called flex security. So it's, it's a, an attempt to bring together the two usually opposed concepts of flexibility and security. Employers like flexibility, workers like security. Although the flexibility employers like is the flexibility to bring people in at short notice for their shifts and so on, change things. But the workers might prefer flexibility which fits in with their family responsibilities, study commitments and so on. Um, <clears throat> the idea of flex security is to try and uh, have some employment security which is different from job security. So the idea is that you, people aren't necessarily in the same job for life but if they lose one job they are supported to gain another job and that might involve retraining and it, and it does involve more substantial unemployment payments than we have in Australia because the idea is that unemployment is something that happens um, and it shouldn't be financially catastrophic. Um, you should be able to reposition and retrain 
while you're unemployed. Now, and that includes active labour market programs. Now, we, we've just seen, of course, in COVID, <clears throat> all of a sudden, after decades of welfare groups like ACOS calling for an increase in the unemployment payment and it being refused by governments, when the COVID-19 struck, all of a sudden there was a doubling of the unemployment payment, the coronavirus supplement, which lasted nine months, a year or so. So it was okay to pay those who'd previously been unemployed half that, but it wasn't okay to pay the many more people who'd become unemployed, presumably because they, there were too many votes there. I can only assume that's the reason. Um, but now they've wound it back. Although there's been a net gain of $50 a fortnight, finally the first increase in decades, the unemployment payment, and Australia has absolutely catapulted from the lowest unemployment payment in the developed world to the second lowest. Now that's progress. We're ahead of Greece. But is that what we achieve? Is that what we try to achieve in the Olympics? Do we, we're now only the second last. You beauty, now we go for gold. Um, Denmark's got the gold. Um, we may not be prepared to pay that much, but we have to look at uh, the unemployment payment and whether it's serving a useful purpose, including for retraining. And Denmark, and, and this is true of Australia too, wage subsidy programs, I mean, the other, the other big change, well, no, there was three big changes. Three big changes the, the Morrison government took in response to COVID, all towards Nordic-type policy directions. One was they, they, they made childcare free for a while. Secondly, they doubled the unemployment payment, and then they brought in JobKeeper, a wage subsidy program to help prop up businesses and their employees, all of which are being wound back. Now, and what I'm suggesting is that those policies actually might be good, not just for a, a global pandemic crisis, they might be good for other times too, as the Nordic countries show. Um, wage subsidies and so on. So Denmark is um, uh, highlighted for its flexibility with skills retraining. It has high workforce participation as a result of these policies. Finland for its schools, Sweden for early childhood investments and paid parental leave. Norway. Then we come to Norway. Um, now this in some ways is the country most relevant to Australia because as you shall see on the map Norway has a sea boundary to its west. This is the North Sea here, and oil, rich, very rich deposits of oil were discovered in the North Sea in the mid-1960s. There's a line between Britain and Norway. The British side takes its proceeds from the oil, the Norwegian side takes its proceeds, but the Norwegians handled their oil wealth very differently from the British, and very differently from how Australia manages our natural resource endowments. That's why Norway is relevant, because it's a country that's become economically very reliant on natural resource extraction. But what it's done with the wealth from the oil is not let it all go into private hands, a few big companies, a few individuals. I'm referring in Australia to Gina Reinhart and Twiggy Forest. Now, Twiggy Forest is a multi-billionaire and he does give quite a bit of money back, but I wonder if he's giving quite as much back as he would if he was actually paying the sort of taxes they would in Norway. I'm not sure. Gina Reinhardt, on the other hand, um, she won't even give money to her own children, let alone um, to the nation as a whole. I mean, that sounds harsh, but, I, you know, she, she recently was quoted as saying, in her next court case, I'm going to deliver a knockout blow to my kids. 
But bloody hell, I mean, that's, that's pretty brutal, isn't it? I mean, you've got that much money, couldn't you just let them have some? I mean, you know, just, you know what do people do with all this money? I don't get it. Okay, so um, Norway, <coughs> when oil was discovered, um, perhaps because of this political culture, multi-party, proportional electoral representation, producing more consensus, there was a serious discussion and the parliament unanimously agreed that the first thing, the oil belonged to Norway. Um, secondly, that it had to be used in a sustainable long-term way by financial and environmental. And so, when big American oil companies came in and said, we're going to, you know, they, they're used to doing oil extraction, we're going to come in and we're going to mine it. And Norwegian government said, yes, that's fine, but you'll pay this much tax and you'll have to employ, um, uh, you'll have, they'll have to be support for local industries. In fact, Norway has made a lot of money out of the pipelines um, to convey its oil and the expertise in how to build pipelines to convey the oil from under the sea and so on. Um, and it provides that expertise to other countries now that have also discovered oil. And the company said, oh no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to pay those sort of taxes. And, and the Norwegians politely said, well, okay, see you later. Thanks for the interest. You know. And the companies came back and said, actually, um, I hope we weren't out of line with that threat. We will come because it's still profitable. And it is still profitable. They make profits. They pay taxes. The Norwegian government uses the tax and has built up a sovereign wealth fund, which essentially provides a dividend every year. 4% of the sovereign wealth fund is sufficient to fund Norwegian government spending, including on things like free education, paid parental leave, and some of the other things, free university education, uh, paid parental leave, and some of the other things we've been talking about. So it is possible for a different approach, and Norway is a, a rather important example. Um, And this was referred to in Ken Henry, who was the Secretary of Treasury a few years ago, did a report on taxation and uh, the Henry report, which referred to all Norway's successes. And there was an attempt to have a resources super profits tax in Australia with mining companies, which Gina Reinhardt, Twiggy Forest, Rio Tinto and others strenuously opposed with a big public... TV advertising campaign and Kevin Rudd, who was Prime Minister at the time, uh, didn't effectively prosecute the case. It was a time when the Labor government was starting to show its divisions, not long before Kevin Rudd was toppled by Julia Gillard. Um, Wayne Swan was the Treasurer uh, and it wasn't successful. Only a very modest change was made to resource taxation, nothing to the extent of the Nordic Norwegian style approach. There is some support for the idea of a sovereign wealth fund in Australia. Uh, there's an interesting book, Trillion Dollar Baby by Paul Cleary, how Norway beat the oil giants and won a lasting fortune. Paul Cleary is an Australian journalist who specialises in resources extraction. I've, since my Northern Lights book, which was 2014, I've done a report on taxation lessons for Australia and Nordic countries, which there's a link to there. The term SCAT. SCAT is, is what Swedes and Danes, that's in their language, refer to as tax. Now, however, as the Danish ambassador told us, SCAT also means treasure. It means tax, but it also means treasure. So it's actually got a positive connotation. The idea, you know, when we say tax here, we often don't say it in a very flattering way. Oh, 
shit, they've taken a bloody text out of my, my wages. We don't think of it as building up a, a wonderful uh, storage of, of funds. Indeed, in Denmark, it goes so far as the ambassador told us that sometimes when a, a man comes home and says hello to his wife, he says, Scat, I'm home, as in honey. Honey, treasure, darling, tax. Not obvious word associations in, in the English language, but some Scandinavian place it appears that it is normal to think of them positively. With taxes, you buy civilization. I think it was Ralph Waldo Emerson says that. People who complain about tax often do so on public roads that are paid for by taxes or public transport, using public libraries. Acacia couldn't be here today, but I'm sure she'd be speaking out for public libraries, um, and so on. Uh, perhaps we need to see the benefits of tax more. So I've continued to do some work for the ACTU and other bodies, the Australian Institute, on how we might um, learn more from Nordic countries. Um, paid parental leave has had some ups and downs. Uh, Tony Abbott promised to expand it but didn't, then didn't do so, mainly because of opposition from within his own party. And then after the Rudd-Gillard governments brought in our maternity leave and dad and partner pay, there was an attempt to roll it back by both Abbott and Turnbull, um, which was opposed um, and successfully opposed uh, because of the, the benefits that uh, had been demonstrated. And in my view, uh, an extinction rather than a winding back of paid parental leave is now necessary. And the opposition, the Labor opposition, Anthony Albanese's leader recently at his party's national conference promised actually something very similar to what Tony Abbott promised a few years ago. Six months paid parental. The World Health Organisation recommended minimum. So that is now Labor Party policy. Um, of course, the question is whether Labor can win the election. And, and as we'll discuss in the seminar, many people argue that Labor is not in government now because it did try to increase taxes at the 2019 election. Um, and you just can't do that in Australia. And... Uh, and, then, and I can tell you, some of these ALP people were very cautious about meeting with um, me and others they might describe as Nordic fantasists um, who um, uh, might be jeopardising their electoral prospects in marginal sets, but that's their problem. I'll keep knocking on their doors. Um, the Victorian government has moved some way towards um, the Finnish education approach in terms of making it... Uh, more robust uh, to become a teacher. One of the reasons that it became so easy to become a teacher in Australia is that the system of university competition, 39 universities all competing with each other for huge numbers of students, the, ex the, the, the requirements were lowered. And it was possible for a while for some to go and enter a, a degree to become a school teacher when in fact they'd failed VCE at the 40% mark. Now that doesn't seem to make sense to you're going to teach kids how to succeed when you haven't succeeded yourself. It just doesn't make sense. The Victorian government has moved some way away from that and with support from the trade unions because trade unions like to protect the, the integrity and the quality of their profession too. Technical schools have been looked at by the Victorian government. TAFE is now regarded as being important to rebuild. There's been a COAG or National Cabinet, it's now called consensus between all state and national governments that vocational learning should be equal in status. Um, uh, with academic learning. Taxation is still a vexed question, including after the 2019 election, the Labor opposition's defeat. 
There are many other areas we could look at. Um, I've learned a lot myself since the book Northern Lights came out, talking to other people who responded to it and so on. Urban design, um, the emphasis uh, on cycling in Denmark, in Copenhagen, for example, the proximity of fresh fruit to public transport, um, pedestrianisation, workplace design, um, I met with a Danish-born professor of design at, Sweden, at Swinburne University who does a lot of work in that space. We've had a, a webinar with one of the Norwegian trade union leaders about how when you involve employees more in consultation and participation, um, <coughs> productivity increases. Indeed, one of the famous historical examples of that is that the Volvo car company uh, changed the old... Henry Ford assembly line method of production whereby every single worker did one extremely specific thing repetitively over and over again, an incredibly boring fragmented assembly line and instead got people working in teams so they rotated their positions and they all learned how the entire car was constructed and that gave Volvo a competitive edge for a long time in output because a very motivated workforce was learning a lot of skills and uh, enthusiastically participating rather than sitting bored and angry on an assembly line. Foreign aid, the Nordic countries lead in donations, so those who say that they're not multicultural enough compared to Australia haven't looked at their foreign aid because they give much, much higher levels of foreign aid to countries that need it. They're well on target, and in Sweden's case, I think, already ahead of the Millennium Development Goals. Australia, I wouldn't be surprised if we see again with the budget coming up in May. It's a favourite thing to cut. We've got to try and get the spending down. All right, where are the votes? Oh, there's no votes in foreign aid. There's a lot of people begin off there. And, um, but, you know, of course, we'll complain if a country like Syria has problems that manifest in, in terrorism, but we won't have done anything about contributing to prevent the causes of it. Another interesting direction of Sweden um, with its foreign minister from 2014 to 2019, Margot Volström, is a feminist foreign policy. Uh, she declared that feminism was now at the centre of Swedish foreign policy, tackling the situation around the world where girls and women are discriminated against. Uh, I won't um, cover all the points in the notes, but they'll be available to you online, those last paras. But I emphasise that I'm optimistic that Australia can learn from these countries, and uh, I, I will now end by just referring to an up, the upcoming publication um, where there's a whole lot of new, new information. It's going to be published in late June, a few weeks' time. And um, this is the cover. No, that's it, not it. This is it. Hang on. The Nordic Edge. Policy Possibilities for Australia, edited by me and Rod Campbell, who's the Research Director of the Australian Institute. Uh, I'll show you the blurb. So, summary of the book goes on the back of the book and inside. Um, climate and energy, work-life balance, mining taxes. Is it impossible to make progress on these, as Australia's experience recently suggests? Nordic countries have taken a Jarvikin approach to this. Um, that's my co-editor, Rod. He's very good at He's a non-academic, so he's good at getting tabloidy type um, uh, phrases in. Uh, and we cover a range of issues. Some of those I've talked about, like independent foreign policy and feminist foreign policy, but also prison reform, retraining, and media diversity too. These are other contributors coming in to this collection. 
um, not only possible but can actually um, increase prosperity and community well-being. So a group of leading Australian Nordic thinkers, including Sweden's recent foreign minister Margot Wallström, she's got a chapter in this book. That's our big coup, big secret scoop. Um, we think, anyway, uh, and it's been published by Melbourne University Publishing. Um, Deakin doesn't have its own press, but um, Melbourne Publishing um, and Melbourne University Press. Um, and we're particularly pleased that Margot Valscom, the Swedish Foreign Minister, is in there because, although I'm, I'm saying competition isn't suitable for all forms of human endeavour, including education, publishers do compete with each other, and there's another publisher, claims to be progressive, won't publish me. When they see that we've got the former recent Swedish Foreign Minister, they're called Black Ink Publisher, they publish the Courtiers all the time, they'll be spewing. They'll be spewing. I can guarantee it. Um, and I've been pleased to have met by Zoom Margot Volstrom over the last year or so many times and uh, we were going to bring her out to Australia but that wasn't possible because of COVID but we've had some earlier discussions and she's written this chapter which we've built up in part with the interviews I've done with her. List of chapters and um, topics. So some new ones with prisons and media reform. Important issues, a lot more emphasis on environmental and energy policy because the Australian Institute is primarily an environmentally and economically policy-oriented organisation. My own emphasis was more on social policy. The chapter on taxes has some statistical data showing that higher taxes don't necessarily cause um, better economic performance, but there's no evidence to show that lower taxes do either. There's no correlation between low taxes and good economic performance and happiness. That's the evidence of that chapter. Now, um, uh, it's based on the, mainly on the work of those first named chapter authors, Richard Dennis and Matt Goodenough, economists who've crunched all the numbers. Um, so we shall see how this is received. Um, I may, if you're interested, I can invite you to the launch. Um, there'll be a Canberra launch, a Melbourne launch, and an Adelaide launch at this stage. Um, and um, the, the Melbourne launch will be at Denmark House in Melbourne CBD, um, free Carlsberg uh, on tap. And um, well, maybe you've got to buy the book, but yeah. um, don't don't leave empty-handed. You know, we'll be checking, um, and and buy one for your wife too, um, because uh, uh, we need the support. Okay, well, hopefully we won't need support. Hopefully it'll take off like a rocket. Okay, thank you. That's my Nordic presentation, and I hope the cloud students have heard it, despite the fact that I've been supplied with a dud back. Turn that off. I'll, I'll just bear with me a sec. I'll just try and stop this. Okay.